is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. And a very good afternoon. We're broadcasting today from uh, Lismore, from the ice cream factory, the Norco Ice Cream Factory. Of course, it's a year ago today of those uh, devastating floods. The uh, the damage bill, they still reckon, is around $10 billion and rising. Plenty of people still waiting for housing and assistance and uh, also uh, massive impact for uh, agriculture Kim Honan will be focusing on that on the program today. Yeah, broadcasting from the ice cream factory here in South Lismore on the banks of the Wilsons River which was about to hit its peak of 14.4 metres a year ago today. We'll cover some of the hardest hit industries, the the soybean industry $20 million worth of soybeans lost, livestock herds decimated and the dairy farmers are still doing it tough. Shortly we'll hear from Tuncester dairy farmer Paul Weir about his recovery. But first let's head to Codrington on the Richmond River where Peter Graham's milk production is half of what it should be and it's expected it'll take another six months to reach full production. And he says it's not much better for other farmers across the region. The guys locally, like my friends, my dairy farming friends locally, they're all close to the same spot. We're all at different levels, I've said that many times now, but um, we're still 60%. The majority of them are still at 60% of production prior to the flood. Um, So they're talking 18 months to two years before they're back on their feet. And I was surprised that some of them were still there um, at that level, Uh, but it's reality check. We're all in the same, dare the punt, the same boat. Just all different ends, different parts of the boat, that's all. And what sort of changes have you made or other farmers have made on farm to prepare for these events into the future? Because it's not the first flood. And it won't be the last. What I thought I was going to do to um, redevelop my dairy system, it's all in the bin. It's rethink everything and we are looking at um, changing to a more intense system but also a high level system in the sense of it's going to be up on a mound. Um, whatever we build going forward, like where we're standing now, Kim, I was putting calf pens through here. My calves would have drowned. So everything's got to be rethought. And so, yeah, we are looking at flood mounds, but it's all a, yeah, it's what you've got to do to get approvals through council to get everything done. Um, we've actually started doing a bit of uh, mound work by getting in a little bit of fill, um, and I've been doing a little bit of homework to get, uh, get ready to, for DAs to be approved um, to build a flood mound and, and then take us to the next level after that, whatever that might be. That is Peter Graham, the Vice Chair of East Oz Milk, a dairy farmer on the Richmond River at Codrington. Speaking there about uh, he's at 50% milk production, but he thinks uh, across the region farmers are really only just back at 60% and talking there about you know getting fill in and starting to think about you know building higher flood mounds and getting you know DAs ready to go through council. I know it's incredible the uh, the amount of work that has to happen behind the scenes and get things going. And though we're talking about that at the ice cream factory here today about just um, the lead up time and getting materials in from overseas. And we'll be talking to uh, Michael Hampson, the CEO, about that shortly. But uh, we're joined now by uh, uh, dairy farmer who's uh, Paul Weir, who's uh, well known to the program. He's joining us on the program again. Good afternoon. Yeah, good day. How are you going? Thanks for coming. Yeah, well, look, it's uh, I guess the thing is to touch base again with you because we know you were doing things tough and you, you were just telling me earlier you're just, just starting to see a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. 
yeah, it's certainly been a, a big year, but uh, slowly but surely, um, yeah, we are starting to get on top of things, which is certainly good, but it's certainly not over yet, the rebuild, um, not, not only on our farm, but certainly across the Lismore area, and well, all flood-affected areas, but, uh, but we're getting there. Take us back to the devastation a year ago. What was it like? It was just surreal. Um, we're only talking to my wife and my son last night. It was just uh, when you actually think back, it just yeah, it, it just didn't seem right. It didn't seem true. Uh, you know, we're used to floods. You know, we live on a floodplain. We understand what happens. But when it just kept coming and coming and coming and and uh, yeah, engulfing you know your assets. Um, yeah, it become and seeing your cows, you know, being injured and, and uh, flo- swimming away. It, it was yeah, it's still surreal to this day when you think about it. Mm. And talking about, you were saying light at the end of the tunnel, why is that, why are you starting to feel as though you're getting there? What are the things that are falling into place for you and others? Well, we're sort of getting to the stage where we can start fixing gardens around the house and, and uh, just things that make you actually feel good. It's a really, we just haven't had time in trying to fence, you know, we've done over seven kilometres of fencing on our place and, um, you know, try to get crops in. It's a big enough job just milking cows alone, let alone rebuilding, uh, you know, nearly 30 years worth of work and, and trying to do that in sort of one year or as quick as you can it's taken a lot of effort and uh, I certainly couldn't have done it myself you know without the support of my family and um, yeah and, and friends and even the whole dairy community uh, it was very humbling I had phone calls you know in the in the months in the weeks leading after the flood you know from right across Australia from from North Queensland to Tasmania to WA from farmers lending support you know offering you know loads of hay it was very very humbling and uh, uh, I'm still indebted to a lot of people today, I feel. Yeah. And it, there were dark days, though, for you, and, in fact, you flirted with the idea of selling up and moving away, didn't you? Absolutely. I mean, it's if we could, we were lucky enough that we did have insurance, and uh, in, in week three, the insurance company actually flew up from Sydney just to have a look around, and the first question I asked them was, were we going to get reinsured, you know, for flood? Because it is a possibility. It's never happened before. We've never had to claim any other time before. In the other two major floods, the 89 flood and the uh, 2017 flood at our farm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it, was, it would be silly to fully rebuild if... If you know, if you didn't have some some sort of coverage in case it happens again, so we were very lucky that they sort of agreed very early that yes, you probably would have coverage. To what risk that was and what cost uh, was another thing, which we've only found out in the last few months. Um, but in our rebuild, everything that we've done, we've we've uh, got, structured a new plan, we've lifted things. Uh, high assets we've lifted them higher above just like we've done here at norco uh, out of that flood level so uh, you know we're, we're thinking well it, there's every chance it could happen again um, and we've got to be better prepared um, i always consider that we were very well prepared we like i said we've never lost anything to any other flood but this one was an exception to the rule so as we rebuild putting things higher and um yeah anything of any value or that's uh, imperative for the business to continue is, is sort of out of that flood level now. Yeah. Yeah. What about, the, the? you mentioned some of the ideas there, but what do you think is the answer to preparing being on the floodplain and, and now you know, what what is it that the things you've, you've said, oh, well, that's really important, I've got to, re- you know, uh, make sure I keep a mental note of that? Yeah, well, it's, it is just knowing where, knowing where the flood is and, and where those 
critical parts of infrastructure are and how you deal with them in a timely manner. The, the tragedy for me still is is how they got it so far wrong. I mean, it, just before midnight when I went and get yeah, the... Yeah, in the lead-up. Yeah, in the lead-up. The, the, the yeah, flood gauges. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the work that the CSIRO are doing in in, uh, in, in, in preparedness again and modelling and, and uh, mitigation, to me, that the mitigation is going to be the key to the success of the rebuild of Lismore. Uh, We've talked about it. We know it can be done. They do it all around the world, flood mitigation, and I've I've got you know great faith in the uh, the ability of the politicians to actually uh, once that CSI report comes, that you know, upstream mitigation measures will happen, which will not only just take it off myself but the whole community and and downstream right to the mouth and bala. And Kim, you've been talking about that with some of the people about that upstream uh, mitigation stuff about planting trees, trying to uh, retain some of that water, stopping the f- slowing the flow yes. down as well. Yeah, Stuart Andrews has done quite a bit of work with uh, landholders in the region with the natural sequence farming and I know that uh, Lismore Council is trying to get uh, millions of dollars worth of funding to continue that uh, trial work in the region so is that the the sort of uh, techniques that you will would hope would slow that flow of the flood water? Well I know just above me there's sort of five sort of contributories that actually they all seem to flood you know when you get those east coast lows or you know that sort of rain it fills up all those valleys instantaneous you've only got to hold back some of the some of the water in i would suggest probably two i mean the csiro will do the numbers but i got no doubt that some mitigation efforts like that upstream will drop the peak in in lismore and down the river massively um yeah i'm not sure about the the, the tree ones because i know every every tree they on average they say to play it displaces a thousand liters on average of of water so theoretically you would think of more trees there the higher the potential flood will be yes it'd be slower but uh, it could potentially push it up higher but all i seen was the devastation on the riverbanks from trees sliding in to the water and then the landscape around the hills the damage that's been done there is you know is, has been tremendous what about the idea about the uh, fixing the flood gauges making them more accurate also uh, improving the communications they were some of the key things that Cyro said as well yeah look that was the tragedy of the of this last flood they mm. just got it so wrong you know three meters wrong which you know and all the other floods before we, we never never anything like that and like I said, leading up to midnight that night when I went and got the cows in, they were saying 11.4 and my sons, you know, and, and the whole of just about Lismore, when they turned off the lights to go to bed, they were thinking they were going to be fine, uh, only to wake up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and be swimming. And that was the tragedy for me, is how they got it so wrong, you know. Uh, so that CSIRO work and getting those gauges going properly again and, um, and you know, developing that strategy and plan is imperative to the success of, of future floods. What about the idea of a dam? I mean, that's been sort of poo-pooed by some, and uh, maybe you think you seem to be thinking slowing the flow with vegetation might be better. Oh no, I am a I'm a dam, You're a dam, dam person. Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, some how they how they construct them. Some you know just peak one peak flow dams you know probably it'd be grazable but look that mitigation work has been done all around the world you know for exactly this and and we'd be as a community. I think, you know, pretty silly to actually not uh, take on board some of these, you know, engineered engineered solutions. Paul, we uh, appreciate your time on the program today and uh, all the best of luck. Thanks. Cheers. It's coming up to 16 minutes past 12. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators 
and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close today. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. So get your entries in. Entries closed today, Kim. Yeah, I'd love to see some farmers from our from region. From this region, yep. absolutely, yeah. I want to head down to the awards and represent the Northern Rivers. Yeah, they've certainly the been farmers. through a lot. They probably, yeah, they probably, the idea of filling out an application form. Someone else can do it for you, of course. Yeah, I'm sure they've filled yeah. out many yeah, over the past right. year. Absolutely, for other things, exactly right. For flood assistance, you name it, yeah. yeah. Well, we're here at the uh, Norco Ice Cream Factory in South Lismore where there is a major rebuild underway i think uh we were looking at potentially april the factory being reopened but it's been pushed uh, back to august now joining us is the chief executive officer michael hampson good afternoon hi kim how are you i'm good thank you so much for hosting the new south wales country hour here today yeah thanks and good to be here with you too michael yes no it's great to be here and uh, we can see a lot of work has happened still a lot of work to go oh absolutely i mean the team have done an amazing job you know the the maintenance teams, the, the our, our people as well in the cleanup efforts, which were, you know, which were quite significant when you think about the uh, the amount of uh, destruction that was here and the loss of product, etc. And the work that the team have done, basically pulling everything out, putting everything back in, building new walls, new reinforcing um, plinths all around the place, uh, mezzanine areas, all new electrical cabinets, and all those kind of things. There's there's been a plethora of work gone on here in a, in a very short period of time, which is which has been fantastic and it's been needed and we're, we're very thankful for our people for, for all of that work. And in terms of the uh, where the flood was, so 14.4 from where we... <laughs> that's a lot of water, that's a long way up and all that machinery that was in there was all underwater. Yeah, a lot so of it you had to junk, I would imagine, and had to start again. Well, stainless steel, it can survive water, but all the electrical Some of pieces, can, yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. know, you need to replace those. But where we're standing here, we put our hand up as high as we possibly mm. can. That was about the depth of the water uh, through the the entire facility, through the entire facility, which, you know, meant that if there was anything electrical that had been submerged there for two or three, two or three days, some have survived, but um, the reality is a lot of it didn't, and that's that's sort of been the big part but we're doing a lot of resilient uh, flood resilience and also fire resilience work here like we've pulled out all of the EPS panelling which is highly flammable and, and and not very helpful so we've got rid of all that from the facility we've got X-flame panelling going in so very much looking at you know the future of this facility so it can be here for another you know 100 years as it has been here before but also making sure that it's not just flood that we're defending against but it's fire and 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 other things that can certainly derail you know this site that produces a hell of a lot of economic activity for the region even now whilst we're not operating there's between 60 and 80 contractors on site um, some of our own people, but mainly um, mainly local contractors that are here doing all the building works, etc. So there's a fair bit of work going on, and, and we want to make sure that we can bring back our people here. In they will start to bring them back in July, August, and then we've got a great new state-of-the-art facility, which will hopefully be able to survive. You know what the next um, the next issue and drama that Mother, Mother Nature sends to us. So you put uh, all the uh, power stuff is uh, uh, above the fourteen four level up to up to about fifteen meter level, and a lot of the equipment you've uh, it's you, you've made it so you can unbolt it and remove it if you get enough time, enough warning, and get it out. That's that's right. Which is so. sort of a European thing. I think that's what they do in Europe. Yeah, that that's true. It's certainly been used in other parts of the world, and certainly other parts of Australia. That's how. Um, 
people deal with uh, flood mitigation. I mean, this site, you know, before the new record, which was set this time last year, this site was very resilient for a 1974 flood. It'll be even more resilient now, which is which is going to be fantastic. But you know, where we've been down now for you know what will end up being 15 to 16 months, um, if we have a similar flood event that we had this time next year and you know we all pray that that's never going to happen but if we do we might be down for a week or two whilst we tidy up which will probably be to to you know for not just us but for other people in the community as well that we're not going to be down and out for you know 12 months etc so that's been a big part of the planning and what our engineering teams have done and as you, as you said the quick release mechanisms for the things that we can't lift up to 15 metres or, or, or higher um, they will be you know, easily unbolted and moved to uh, up on a lot of mezzanine levels that will be around the place so that we can keep that out. And also, you know, the stock, we lost about $7 million worth of stock through the, um, the process. We've got different protocols on how we'll manage stock here uh, in conjunction with third-party providers as well so that we don't have the, the level of loss that we had previously. The other issue, you said you got a bit of grief from people uh, and people talking on the ABC about uh, possibly moving the factory. You said, well, if you if you move, you've got to start from scratch. You've got a, a greenfield site. It'll take you a couple of years. You've got to pay a lot of money to buy a new site. And there's not a lot of uh, spare land available in, in this sort of region to do that sort of thing. And uh, you just thought that at this site was uh, was a better fit. Yeah, that's true. I mean, my friendly sparring partner here, Kim's, asked me a number of questions <laughs> over the time. Um, taking a break I, I mean, today. Yeah, taking a break. Thanks, <laughs> a, Kim. You're, well, but, you're allowed to ask a question. I mean, it's a, it's a fair question. <laughs> it is a fair yeah, question. Yeah. I mean, the reality for us is simple. We can't afford to build a new factory somewhere. Can we do as best we can with what we have here to get to get this facility back on its feet, to get 140 people back employed into the area, to have a major economic hub for the Lismore region. And our view on you know, looking at all of, the, all of the risks in and around that, we believe that that's possible. But that's not without the fact that there's other things that need to help and um, us, and not just us. We're, we're talking about an entire region and not just the town of Lismore, but there's Korokai, there's Woodburn, there's also Ballina that was significantly flooded is that we really need to get on and have a look at this mitigation because you know that's that's the thing that's going to help everyone not just norco not just um you know one or two towns but the entire region and, and that's that's a really important piece of work that can't come fast enough and once that piece of work and and recommendations come out having the having the money put aside to get those things done quickly I think is very important for, for this region for a whole lot of reasons, not just financial, but a lot of mental health and people's wellbeing. What about the contracts? You still have ice cream contracts in August? You push it out till then? Yeah, we've been in touch with all of our customers and they know that we make the best ice cream in the country here and they're very keen to come back. So we're in dialogue with them all, all the time. We had a great session with one of our customers where we've, we've got a new range of products coming to the marketplace we had them here testing those last week and they're incredibly excited so you know that's still a bit of work to do there but um, you know we're, we're very confident and indeed there's a significant amount of willingness there for for you know our customers to come back to support the region to support our 100 percent farmer owned cooperative because they know that you know as a hundred percent farmer owned cooperative all of our profits go back to help our members and we and we're very big in the community also so they see that, understand that and value that and they definitely want to get their ice cream from this facility. Yeah. 
Michael Hampson, uh, thanks for joining us on the program today and thanks for letting us host the uh, outside broadcast from here, from the factory. No problem, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, look, I wasn't sure there was going to be any ice cream here today, so I was up at (laughs) 4 o'clock in the morning with a tub of ice cream whilst I was editing. (laughs) Right. So I've got my tummy full. Okay, so you're ice creamed out. (laughs) You're all set. It's uh, 25 minutes past 12. The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, let's hear from a a local beef producer who was instrumental in the response efforts. Bruce Lau works for Norco Rural and he's also director of the North Coast Local Land Services. But when the floods hit a year ago, he stepped down from that role to focus on helping farmers. Good afternoon, Bruce. Hi, thanks, Kim. So take us back to a year ago. You were isolated on your farm for, yeah, for a couple of days. Yeah, we had lots of rain. Uh, we got several creeks between us and town and we couldn't get to town ourselves and also had cattle isolated and caught up in the flood uh, The flood uh, as it un- unravelled and uh, we were worried about our stock that we couldn't get there. But we were lucky enough to have neighbours who could and they, uh, they looked after them as best they could with, with large tractors going through water to take fodder. Uh, we found ourselves locked in at home and secured all our animals on our home farm uh, up away from flood and in that time I was inundated with calls and my day job with Norco Rural based in Casino is animal production and field services and uh, we look after nutrition and animal health for customers' um, animals day in day out so front of mind of all my um, customers and a large number of friends and, and the community I was feeling a lot of calls uh, regarding nutrition and animal health and also um, the actual loss of animals that were people just washed, saw animals washing away, especially down the lower river. And um, I'm thinking, feeling quite uh, helpless other than moral support on the phone and putting some strategy in place for when the waters did recede. And we, we had a few events in, in the one event. Water was very slow to recede. So... Uh, how can we start getting people to talk about what's going on downriver particularly? Um, and that was uh, lost animals. And I thought, I'm not a, a web designer or a guru on the computer, but... But you're on Facebook. Yes, I'm on Facebook. Who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> so you went and set up a page which was instrumental in, in helping people reunite with their, their livestock. Yes, look, I set up... Um, not knowing really what I was doing. It was pretty clunky, but I had a, a young lady who I got to check over it and made, uh, made her a, um, a, an admin for it so that I could make sure everything was going to the right uh, areas and people. Uh, the Livestock and Property Lost and Found, Northern Rivers Flood 2022. And it got thousands and thousands of hits and tens of thousands of views and, and thousands of members joined up and people visiting and it, posting photos of horses that had washed up in their front yard, standing on verandas, standing around riverbanks, on roads, on bridges, and people were actually identifying their cattle. And it was really um, heartwarming to see that when cattle and animals were being rehomed back to their original owners just through the Facebook pictures alone. It, it, you were almost filling a gap that uh, some of the emergency services and LLS and Department of Primary Industries, they couldn't fill that gap quickly enough and you just sort of thought, we've got to do something, Let, let's do it now, let's set up a page. Well, look, I, I didn't know of any other pages at the time yeah. uh, from anybody, uh, whether it be uh, responders or, or the community, and I just thought... How can I get to so many people that are ringing me? And a lot of the people that were ringing me were on Facebook. And uh, I thought, this is a no-brainer. Let's just give it a go. And we did that. And other, other pages popped up, and, and that was really good. 
Um, as far as, far as um, local land service, I'm, I'm actually, there's actually six board members, uh, three of which uh, minister appointed and three uh, producer uh, elected, and I'm, I'm one of the producer elected, so I'm absolutely representing the producer, and, uh, and, and it's a board that works well for producers. And, uh, and I, I stepped down from the board once I received information that uh, they'd like me to uh, work with some feed and get some fodder out for when the waters did recede, uh, because that's my day job. Yeah. And that's what we did back in the fires um, 1920, uh, pre my um, appointment to the board. It's what we did then with thousands of bales of hay into the fire cattle. And uh, we're very lucky to have a community facility in Casino uh, owned by uh, Bruce Wright and the family at the Primex site and Norco has a close relationship with Bruce as the naming rights sponsor and uh, Bruce allowed us kindly to access that because we knew there was going to be large amounts of fodder that had to be transported and unloaded and, and done safely. And, and when did you realise that was a priority? It was almost straight away. You're, going to, you're thinking we're going to have to have a safe place for the livestock and we're going to have to find some fodder. Yes, look, the, the local land service were very responsive to that, to the, the emergency need on fodder. They were really responsive. The, the problem that the local land service had was they had people that were flood-bound themselves and catastrophically flood-damaged uh, for our local um, responders. Uh, and it was only in this in initial stage that I was able to come up with a plan, put it to them, uh, tick their boxes, we got the ball rolling, and then we were able to stock the fodder with... I think we had the first 15 semi-trailer loads of hay come from local producers out of local farms that were on the western side of Casino because we couldn't traverse on the eastern side. So we utilised as much local fodder as we could, but understanding the enormity of the situation, we had to call on our, our hay contractors and our, and our hay desk through Norco and other hay suppliers. Norco wasn't the only provider of fodder for this event. Um, and we, we made sure that the hay kept coming. But the critical thing, and one thing that the LLS did require, was quality. And uh, we made sure quality hay was coming, and we would have anywhere up to six or eight uh, B-doubles and single-deck trucks lining up, and uh, we had terrific people on the ground helping. We had community members, we had uh, other board members, LLS staff would come and assist um, in that very early stage. So. LLS did absolutely everything they could to be on the ground at that early, early stage. But being a producer, being having cattle in the same predicament myself, been lucky to have family that could, could look after mine, um, and the ability to organise the logistics and the transport, and the site with, with Bruce Wright and the team at Primex, um, and some staff to come in and help in that initial stage set it up, it, it was a very good event. Uh, Bruce, we appreciate you uh, having a chat about uh, what happened to you and your situation uh, in regards to the feed and the assistance and the Facebook page. Sounds like an amazing initiative to get up and running at the uh, uh, right at the beginning. So uh, thanks for sharing your story on the country. Today. No, thank you. And look, I thank, thank you for having me. And also I'd like to thank all the people that brought meals, all the extra people that came to that fodder drop to offer encouragement. We had the general public, we had the public come in and lift bales of hay in, in, in the short term. It was a terrific effort for the whole community. Thank Bruce Wright at Primex. It really was a community effort and I thank everybody that was involved.
Yeah, okay, terrific. Yeah, absolutely. It's coming up to uh, half past 12 here on the New South Wales Country. Now, before we uh, go to some news headlines, uh, of course, Kim, the the ice cream factory wasn't the... uh, the only factory to go under. Yeah, not far from here, just over the bridge in North Lismore. Jenna Piwackett runs a plant-based fermented drinks business. Well, I should say she ran it there, right. of course, no longer. Yes. Uh, they've now moved their production facility to Ballina. Did you love that space? Did you ever think you'd be leaving it? Oh, gosh, yeah. We were always planning on leaving that space, to be honest, because of the flood risk. We, you know, when you're in North Lismore, it's not like being in even in the CBD. We had been looking in spaces even in the CBD. We'd been looking in spaces in South in what was at the time called flood-free um, because of, you know, it was on a, a rise. It was above the 1 in 100. Um, but knowing that that street, I mean, I've lived in Lismore for 12 years and probably that street's been underwater knee-high at least six or seven times. And those are floods that are considered major, but not at any point close to, you know, going over the the levee. The the CBD's high and dry, but that street is a nuisance flood area. And it was very difficult to build a business that has multiple parts to it um, and small pieces that are difficult to evacuate in a hurry um, and a food production space. So... We were always sort of planning and had been actively looking. Uh, there just nothing had come up in that time. Um, but things like, you know, we get vinegar, our apple cider vinegar comes in an IBC, and we always used to have it delivered to my house in East Lismore in the garage because we knew that in the instance of a flood, we wouldn't be able to evacuate that. And that's like, you know, a multiple thousands of dollars in an investment that we can't afford to lose. So we had to have our business in other locations, kind of little satellites because of the risk of flood in north. But we did love the space. Did you manage to move everything before the floods hit? Yeah, we had a very ambitious flood plan, um, which I never thought would have come together as well as it did in the moment. I felt, um, because um, North Lismore is such a high-risk area, I had been feeling quite uh, floody for a couple of months even leading up to it, knowing that it was La Nina weather system, that we'd had a couple of minor floods that, had, you know, Brown's um, car park had gone under. Like, we'd had a few situations where I felt like, okay, we could be getting a flood soon. Nothing, obviously, along the lines of what we had, but I had already started m- moving some things out of, the, out of the space. So buckets of product that didn't need to be kept cool, like our tonics and things that are self-stable, um, all of that kind of stuff. I had, um, had started moving so that I could um, easierly get out in an emergency. We had an account with um, a mobile cool room service. So at the time, on the Sunday morning, we called them up, hoping to book it for the Monday morning, which obviously we know now would have been too late. But they were open. They were obviously anticipating that people needed mobile cool rooms in that pinch, and we got one. I think we got one of the last ones and evacuated all of our stock. We were evacuating from Friday. So a lot of people were only evacuating on that Sunday. We had started on the Friday, and some people thought we were a bit mad. But I just didn't want to lose anything. So we actually evacuated quite successfully. Um, even fridges and everything. So we didn't lose much product or equipment, but obviously we lost production space. Our entire facility to man- manufacture was gone, and that's obviously you have only so much stock that you've pre-made, and then after that you're, you know, your business can't move forward without production space. So um, there was a lot of pivoting after the flood to keep ourselves going. 
That's Jenna Piwackett from Piwackett's Traditional, now at Ballina. And speaking of that pivot, what they did is they moved to a pecan orchard at Eltham, which used to be the Eltham Valley Pantry. So it's got a commercial kitchen there on the pecan orchard. So they moved into the commercial kitchen to continue the business from April through to September. And then they opened up in Ballina just before Christmas. So... Good news story there. Okay, some some good news at the end. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour broadcasting from Lismore, where we're, we're putting the spotlight on the floods uh, exactly a year ago today in uh, this neck of the woods uh, with those one in 100, some, some say one in 1,000 year floods. Let's go to news headlines now. Adam Story's there. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Uh, we're well and truly into the uh, state election campaign, if you haven't noticed. Uh, the Premier has today promised there'll be no new or increased taxes if the Liberal National Government is re-elected next month. He's pointed to the state's two AAA credit ratings as evidence of the government's economic management and says taxes such as payroll taxes have been cut 33 times since the Liberal Nationals have been in office. Labor, meanwhile, says it will make religious vilification unlawful within its first 100 days in government if it's elected. The opposition also says it will transform the state's existing religious advisory council into a new body called the New South Wales Faith Affairs Council. And uh, the leader, Chris Minns, has pledged $15 million for safety and security for religious groups and institutions. A crime scene's been set up at a police station at Auburn in Sydney, uh, where a man was fatally shot by police overnight. The man was armed with a knife and allegedly threatened officers when he was shot in the foyer of the station at, uh, just after midnight. State and Territory Workplace uh, Ministers are meeting in Canberra today to consider a ban on the use of uh, engineered stone. Uh, the CFMEU has been calling for it, saying one in four workers exposed to silica dust from the stone have been diagnosed with silicosis or other related diseases. And the National Film and Sound Archive has reached a new milestone today with the institution collecting uh, the institution's collection now totaling more than four million items uh, from across the decades mm. might be might be a bit of you and me in there mate <laughs> I doubt it <laughs> but I mean some good viewing there no Absolutely. Doubt four million items that I need to watch that's a lot of that's, that's a lot that's of a viewing. lot of YouTubing yeah <laughs> all right Okay, um, I don't mind the old Australian movies. Some of them are pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, actually. a bit of uh, Dad and Dave. Or, uh, and, <laughs> oh, yeah, the old Dad and Dave, Jetta, and yeah. yeah, some of those old uh, uh, 10,000 Horsemen, things like that. They're pretty amazing for what they did at the time. That your era, was it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that, buddy. See you, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming up to uh, 23 minutes to one. Let's get some news headlines now from uh, the Bureau. Juan Parks there. Good afternoon. Hi, Mike. So weather-wise, there's a, there's a storm on the way, I see, looking at some of the forecasts. Yes, that's right. What we expect is a showery conditions east of the divide and, and also chance storms as well. But some storms in the northeast could become potentially severe. Um, well, especially about those areas in Hunt, uh, including Hunter and the mid-north coast and northern tablelands and part of the northern rivers regions. And these storms bear the risk of localized heavy rainfall uh, that may bring flash flooding and also uh, risk of, as well as risk of damaging wind gusts and large hailstones. And similar conditions expected for tomorrow as well. East, uh, East of the divide, especially in the northeast, where the risk of severe thunderstorms still lingers. 
but west of the divide will be hot and dry, especially inland. And with that, we expect high fire dangers inland, uh, covering the whole western slopes and the central and southern inland regions. And before the cooler southerly changes, we bring temperature relief in the southwest and east of the divide on Wednesday and Thursday. Right, so the storm moving through fairly quickly by the sound of things and, uh, and pretty hot out west. That's right, yes. So uh, for the temperatures uh, in the west, eh, we e- expected the top temperatures to reach high 30s, like uh, 36 to 38 degrees ranges in the upper west eh, and part of the northwestern slopes and plain and, uh, up, uh, no, and uh, some parts of central um, western slopes and the plains. Um, and, uh, well, the, the temperature relief, uh, on the other hand, is on site, as I said, especially about the southeast and, uh, sorry, southwest and of the state, and as well as the east of the divide with the cooler changes. But um, the risk of severe thunderstorms will still remain in the northeast, at least till um, Thursday, and, but the storm risk looks like a, uh, looks like a storm risk will be easing from Friday onward, and the temperatures might be easing as well before um, the heat increasing again uh, from Sunday into early New Week ahead of the next front. Okay, Juan, thanks for that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's coming up to uh, twenty minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. This is the New South Wales Country Hour. Now, uh, Kim, we know, of course, that uh, it wasn't just uh, the uh, the farms uh, that uh, and farms and uh, also the town itself that suffered uh, extensive damage. Uh, the schools copped it as well. Yeah, and particularly in North Lismore, Richmond River High Campus had flood water surge through it uh, while the students were relocated to the Lismore High Campus in East Lismore. While they won't move back, the animals have moved back onto the school farm. Sally Ford is the agricultural teacher at Richmond River High. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. What devastation did the floodwater cause the school a year ago with the Um, buildings and the farm? The floodwater basically destroyed everything. It took everything except for the few things that my staff and myself were able to evacuate off the site a little bit earlier. Um, I lost 30 years worth of teaching resources for everything that I deliver. Most of my colleagues were the same. The kids lost their school, and for some of them, it's like their second home. Yeah, no doubt it's been a very tough year. It's definitely been a tough year and a tough journey, but um, there's a little light at the end of the tunnel that's starting to appear now that we're back to the farm site. We haven't got the school, but we've got the farm back. And let's talk about the the positives. You moved the animals to your own farm for how many months? So um, our farm is the evacuation site. So I've actually set up temporary pens and quarantine areas so that they don't mix with our animals. Um, That kind of went pear-shaped when the flood hit because normally we lose a quarter of an acre off our property. We didn't even have a quarter of an acre left. So I'd had to cut fences and let the cattle and property, everything into my neighbours. Thank God they let us do that. Um, But luckily I was able to save everything and I have an incredibly supportive husband because through this time Pete and I have funded feeding the school's livestock and keeping them all alive. Um, Because the kids had lost everything, I couldn't lose the school cattle and sheep and chickens and everything else. Um, It would have been too heartbreaking, heart-wrenching for everybody. But um, we are slowly getting back. So eventually they let us back onto the farm site just to let the cattle back on to have feed because I had nothing left. I had no food. I couldn't buy fodder. I was in all sorts. Um, But we got the farm back 
and now I'm gradually rebuilding everything. So I drive past the, the, the school farm on the way to work and to and from work each day and I actually get very excited when I see the animals that the cattle appeared then the sheep appeared and then the sheep went away and then some new angora goats appeared and um, you're actually going to take the angora goats as well as some chickens to Sydney Royal Easter Show this year. Yes as one of the kids said we just need to get a little bit of normal back and normal for us is the farm Um, Normal for us is attending shows, it's having the kids on site, interacting with the animals and doing things. Um, So, yeah, it's exciting when the kids come back to the farm because that's what they actually say, you know, our school isn't normal, it's not what we used to have. It's good, but it's not what we used to have, but the farm's our normal. Um, Sydney Royal's our first one um, with, yes, the little Angora goats, that's a new adventure for us. And our Dubbo sheep are about to turn up in about eight days. So that's a big exciting thing because that's one of the shows that we love going to and competing against. Um, It's about 60 other schools from around the state. Yeah, well, I want to be there when they unload those sheep. (laughs) Oh, it's the best fun and the kids love it. And one of the methods to my madness is I can't take the cattle across to our pop-up site, so our little campus that's off the back of Southern Cross there, but I can certainly take goats and chickens and sheep over there and put them on halters and lead them through the school. So hopefully everybody's going to be able to participate in a little bit of the farm again as we're gradually getting it all up and running again. And agriculture, obviously, a big part of the region, and so the you know the kids are really tapped into that as well. So you know, having having the farm, having the animals, having them, trying getting that back is that's important too. It's a huge important things for our kids and our community mm. because we're one of the last high schools in the area to be teaching agriculture right through to Year Twelve, and lots of our kids want to go into industry. They want to be in industry in our area. So if I can keep gradually getting all our enterprises back up and running. It helps when they go out on work placements for those kids to get jobs in industry locally. Yeah, and there's jobs. There are jobs out there. That's right. There's there's a shortage of labour. Oh, yeah. And um, my primary industries class last year was a classic. I had 22 kids in the first work placement. By the time they came back, I only had six kids left because they all got offered jobs out on placement. (laughs) So it's, it's really valuable for our area. And show chickens. Tell us about... So you're looking at the Sydney Royal for the chickens, at least. Yes, so we have entered... Um, the layer competition and the broiler competition so they are where the Sydney Royal organisation basically donate to the schools chickens and then you try to prepare them and then you take them back Um, that was one of the exciting ones last year the amazing New South Wales Ag Teacher Society supported me we had our show chickens at home when the flood hit we were in the middle of preparing them but then I couldn't get them there so one of the other teachers took them for us and yeah, we actually did quite well down there, which was interesting. So mainly because, um, yeah, we just lost everything. But yeah, the Ag Teachers Association throughout New South Wales are incredible. The support that they've offered me, our school and other schools in this region. Well, you certainly needed it. <laughs> There's a story for you for Sydney yeah. Royal when you're broadcasting right, from exactly. there. Make sure you catch yeah. up with the team. Yeah, we yeah. will, absolutely. Yeah, Terrific. Sally. Well, all the best. Good luck. Thank well, we you might so see much. you down at the Royal because we're oh. there in April, so that'll be yep. good. Yeah, we'll you've be been there. bussing about. Maybe you can bus me down to oh, Sydney yeah. too. Yeah, jump on. There'll be room. <laughs> we'll see you there. You're listening to the Country Hour. We're broadcasting from Lismore from the Norco Ice Cream Factory. It's not up and running yet, but it will be, they say, in August, and uh, the time now is 13 minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for the world today. A year on from devastating floods, you'll hear from residents of Lismore as the recovery and rebuilding effort continues while the memories of the disaster remain. 
And does the federal government have a good case to curb superannuation tax entitlements? Is it an equitable way to pay down Australia's budget deficit or an attempt to grab hard-earned savings? Those stories are more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. Well, among the crops destroyed by the floods in the Northern Rivers a year ago, $20 million worth of soybeans. Of the 12,000 hectares of soybeans planted from the Clarence to the Tweed, only 5% were harvested. Paul Fleming, president of the North Coast Oil Seeds Association, says it's the worst year for growers in his history. And he says it was devastating for the 150 growers in the region, with the majority losing their entire crop. Yeah, no, a lot of farmers lost pretty much all their, their soybean crops as well as, you know, a lot of them are cane growers as well and that sort of thing. So, yeah, hit pretty hard. And, and the 5% that was harvested, what was it used for? Oh, it was pretty poor quality as well. It, it was pretty well just uh, low-grade crushing beans that would have went into stock feed. And so could you estimate then the loss, the, the, the loss of the, the soybean income for, for the northern rivers, for the north coast? Stretching my memory, but I think it was upwards of 20 million. Yeah, the loss. Yeah, for the industry. Well, how do you recover from a disaster like that? And that that hit. I mean, it's massive. Oh yeah, it is. It is massive. That, but luckily, the majority of growers also, you know, might have off-farm income, or you know, sugarcane wasn't a total loss, or they might have had a bit of rice. So, you know, it's been a real struggle. But for that hopefully most of them uh, have another income stream from somewhere else that might just keep ticking them, ticking them over and whatever. But, yeah, no, it's a, it's a real big hit for everyone, really. Mm. As, you know, on top of the, the machinery losses and everything else, having no income uh, out of that soybean crop is pretty, pretty devastating. So how soon were growers able to plant a new crop? Well, as far as soybeans go, well, they don't get that crop was lost and you can't replant it until till this spring at the earliest so yeah like there was some planting start in November and right through until Christmas or early January and so yeah it, luckily it's been a reasonably good season this year so far it's probably a bit more on the dry side than anything but the, I think pretty much everyone that that planned to plant soybeans has planted and and got a, a pretty good looking crop going forward we probably do with a little bit more rain now some of the crop was actually planted a bit later than than ideal because of the the dry weather earlier in spring but the crops are actually looking pretty good that is paul fleming from the north coast oil seeds association he's the president kim Hone and michael condon with you for the country i'm one of the other major agricultural assets in the lismore region heavily impacted by the floods last year, a year ago, were the Lismore sale yards, like the, the factory, not just the, the first flood, but the follow-up second flood. Kevin Cocciola is the livestock agent for Ian Weir and Son. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, both of you. Yeah. Good to have you here. Yeah, Thanks, so man. you've been through a torrid time at the sale yards. Oh, a lot of people have been through worse times, but yeah. we've had a lot of frustrations over the last 12 months, yeah. And trying to get the sale yards open again? Yeah, uh, with protocol and... Uh, regulations and whatnot it's been a bit of a battle so it has but uh, we've got through it and the first we got some demand demandables put in today that's this morning so fantastic some, yeah. i saw a bit of action there as i drove in well it's the first time in 12 months it should have been 10 months ago but at any rate yeah. we got the demandables in so not but, the permanent building but the demandables yeah so the sale yards are actually owned by lismore city council yeah we own all the infrastructure but the uh, uh can't we rent the uh, yards off the land off the council yes 
Yeah, so hopefully your next first sale next month. The first one I'm going to have is April Fool's Day. <laughs> is the first one we're going to have. Right. Hey, I was going for the I was going for the 14th of March, but to get everyone organised, it's uh, to get them all together and get computers in and everything wired up to scanners. We thought we'd have it done by the um, next week, but unfortunately, it won't be done until the 20th of March. So, uh, yeah. And the other issue, Kevin, is that the Ian Weir office is in downtown Lismore. Well, Used has to it be. been in the, and you won't be returning there. You'll no, be working no. from home from now on. Yeah, well, things have changed over the years in the agency game. The real estate and everything else is on computers, and mm. no one walks in the front door now. The only people that walk in, someone wants to borrow some money. So I'm pleased to have the uh, door shut. Uh, but it's um, yeah, real estate's changed. Uh, payment to producers and everything has changed now. Emails, uh, money's all banked and that. And our, really, our office is our car. Or your uh, horse. I called you the other day, well, and you're on your horse. I was on my horse. That's right. We were going to the other mountains. You're <laughs> lucky to get me on the laptop with a horse. <laughs> but um, uh, lucky he's quiet. <laughs> but um, no, it's all changed in the game now. And you could sit in the office all day and not one person come in. People ring your mobile phones now. We wouldn't get 10 phone calls a week through the office because I have the office number come through to my mobile phone. And so I know how many phone calls we get. So, yeah, just things have changed in the agency game, especially in the last three years with COVID, last four years with COVID and floods and whatnot, yeah. Kevin, we'll have to leave it there, but appreciate your time on the program today. Good luck with the opening. Thank you very much. Kevin Cocciola, who's a local, lands, a local livestock agent. Let's go, talking livestock, let's go to Carcor Cattle and David Monk. Numbers lifted by 4.30 for a yarding of 1,770. It was a pretty good quality yarding with good numbers of young cattle to suit the feeders along with odd lots to suit the processors. There were limited numbers of ground steers and heifers and there were 240 cows yarded. Young cattle of the trade were 8 cents dearer with prime vealers selling to 4.48. Prime yearlings sold from 3.30 to 3.98. Feeder steers were 6 to 9 cents dearer while the feeder heifers were firm. Feeder steers sold from 3.30 to 4.24, while a feeder heifer sold from 300 to 3.72. The few young cattle of the restockers were around firm, with the young steers selling to 500 and the young heifers 400 cents. Ground steers and heifers were 5 to 8 cents dearer, with the prime ground steers selling from 3.38 to 3.73, while the prime ground heifers sold from 307 to 3.63. Cows were 3 to 7 cents dearer, with the 2 and 3 scores selling from 2.30 to 2.88. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 282 to 304 to average 295. Heavy bulls sold to 300. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. To Wodonga Cattle Nally and Dax. Good afternoon. Just over 1,100 cattle sold to a bigger buying group, which gave the market some intensity. Some trade categories had bursts of strong bidding, heavy cattle in reasonable numbers, and some processors were keen to secure heavy bullocks. It was an excellent yarding of cows and vendors were rewarded with intense bidding throughout the sale. Veal jumped 40 cents at the top end, 340 to 474. Trade steers were few, 365 to $4. Trade heifers gained 15 cents, 335 to $390. Feeder heifers, medium weight, were back 10, 330 to 373. Feeder steers gained 4, 355 to 395. Heavy steers were firm, 336 to 375. Bullocks eased back 4, 355 to 380. Heavy heifers were shaped. 330 to 355. Heavy cows lifted 6 cents, 290 to 315. The middle run of leaner types, 230 to 272. And the best bull topped at 316. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA.
to Forbes Sheep and Lamb, Crystal Ridley. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 27,750 head. There was 15,600 lambs penned and quality was very mixed with a large percentage of planer and secondary lambs on offer. There were still some good lines of well-finished trade and heavy lambs available. The usual buyers were present competing in a firm to slightly easier market that did fluctuate with the quality available. Trade weight lambs 20 to 24 kilos eased 2 to 3 dollars a head selling from 151 to 213. Heavy lambs held firm to range from 198 to 222 dollars a head. Extra heavy weights were two to five dollars easier. Again with quality affecting numbers. Prices ranging from 218 to 273. The balance of the lambs and 9,100 head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. To Gunnedah cattle now. Good afternoon. A reduced pending of 1,765 head. Yearlings made up the biggest percentage along with a fair supply of ground steers and cows. Quality was mostly good. A reduced percentage of secondary grades. Condition varied greatly. A similar buying group in attendance. Strong restocker demand saw lightweight steers sell to dearer trends of as much as 11 cents a kilo, reaching 498 cents a kilo for vealers. Medium weights experienced little change, 290 to 434. Heavyweights little bit quality related Price change 288 to 410. Competition for yearling heifers somewhat subdued, resulting in cheaper trends. Lightweights to restockers 260 to 365 cents for CND muscle. Medium and heavyweights 290 to 355. Steers over 500 kilos to feed 310 to 370, including milk tooth lines. A firm, to firm cow market with medium and heavy three and four scores 250 to 284 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Canada. To Inverell cattle. Just a few less cattle this week for a yarding of 900 head, consisting mainly of yearlings and cows, and there was a fair few pens of bullocks and steers also. Quality was good in a cheaper market for the most classes of cattle. Heavy feeder steers were 15 cents cheaper, selling from 320 to 372 to average 350 cents. Feeder heifers were 10 to 15 cents cheaper. They ranged from 322 to 348, and trade heifers 302 to 426 cents. Bullocks and steers also lost ground, selling from 290 to 332. And grown heifers they ranged from 265 to 315 cents. Cow market lost last week's gain to be 10 cents cheaper, some sales more. Three score cows averaged 252 cents. Heavy cows sold from 270 to 290 to average 279 cents. Best of heavy bulls, 236 cents. Doug Robson at Inverell. Scone cattle, Stephen Adams. Good afternoon. Scone penned 858 head, a rise of 169. Young cattle in the majority with an improvement in quality. The regular buyers attended to a variable market with background cattle selling to dearer trends, although feeders were mostly cheaper. Wiener steers were cheaper, 324 to 444 to restockers. Heifer similar, 300 to 332. Light steers to background saw a dearer trend, 300 to 424. Medium feeder steers sold to cheaper trends, 352 to 398, and heavy feeders. 320 to 372. Background steers were dearer, 346 to 418. Light heifers to background, 275 to 336. Medium feeders, 298 to 328. And butcher cattle, 354 to 380. No ground steers to quote, but heavy heifers dearer to process, 212 to 274. Medium cows cheaper, 180 to 272. While heavy drafts were dearer, 250 to 275. Heavy bulls, 230 to 240. Stephen Adams, MLA at Scone. 
That's the market information for today. And uh, we're staying here with the accent on the north coast and those record-breaking floods of last year. We'll be uh, looking at the sugarcane industry and the recovery there and uh, also the processing, the Broadwater Mill. So we'll be heading, heading there and broadcasting from there tomorrow. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. It's heading up to news time. Thank you.